Sketches from Scripture presents Light in the Darkness, a teaching series from the stories of Genesis. Light in the Darkness is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the narrative structure and style of the book of Genesis as context for better understanding of Scripture. This will help us trust more in these scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events in real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast scatters your darkness and makes the great light abundant in your life. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. So we're going to be looking at uh, Genesis. I'm going to cover a little bit of uh, chapter five. I talked about a little bit of it. Uh, um, talked about it a little bit last night. We're going to start with chapter five and kind of blow through chapter eleven. So I'm not going to read a lot. I'm not going to stop and dwell on a lot of things. But I want to go through and point some things out. So it's kind of more of a class and. Um, but I, I think I do have some encouraging things here that, um, we may want to take a look at. So I'm going to get right into it. I'm not going to review what we've done, um, the past videos. Um, but I may touch on some of those things as we, as we go through. So let's just start right ahead, right here in, uh, Genesis chapter five. So, <clears throat> Uh, at the end of chapter four, we had the lineage of Cain. So Cain gets sent out after murdering his brother and we have the lineage of the people of Cain. And now here in chapter five, we have the lineage of Adam. And as I said in the last video, genealogies serve three purposes. First, they are genealogies and, uh, you can look through and get a sense of the lineage of the Jewish people. And so therefore recording history and, and family information, the history of the Jewish people. Um, they are act breaks. So chapter five, this lineage of Adam is letting us know sort of the whole tale of Adam is now kind of over and we'll be moving into a new tale. And you see that because the lineage of Adam begins with Adam, but it ends with Noah and his sons. And so that lets us know, oh, okay. Um, now we're going to be talking about someone else here for a little bit. And that gets us into the story of Noah, which begins in the next chapter, chapter six. So they're genealogies, they're act breaks, but they also have narrative in them. But sometimes you have to kind of really read between the lines to see the narrative. And so we see an example of that uh, here, just right out of the gate. So um, <clears throat> you have, again, uh, it's repeating from Genesis one that God created a female. It's repeating that Genesis one, um, language, uh, right again. And it's, it's almost, it's what you have here is almost a recreation of sorts because you have a creation that's gone very awry. And so now with the birth of Seth, now we're going to, we're sort of starting over, right? Okay. So that, that didn't really work. And so now we're going to start over with Seth. And so, uh, you know, Abel's dead. Things are not going to go well through Cain's family. We see that in his, in his lineage. So now we have the lineage of Seth. So it sort of repeats that creation of man language at the beginning of chapter five, almost as if to say, let's try this again. Okay. Now we're, now we've got Adam and Eve and now Seth, and now Seth is going to have children. So we have that whole lineage there. And what you also see here 
is the beginning of death, or I should say natural death. Uh, Cain obviously murdered Abel, but Adam is the first person to die a natural death, at least the way that it is recorded. And so here you have this edict from God, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And then you have these people that live for a very long time after that. And so they have to be scratching their heads going, well, that must not be true. And then suddenly one day, Adam dies. And it doesn't give details about it. We don't know if he was sick for a long time or if he was weak or anything like that. We just know that he does die. And so at this point, it is really confirmed. Death is something that now happens to man. We know murder could have happened, right? So we're trying to keep away from Cain and his people because apparently there's some, they're, they're all pursuing their own passions over there. The people of God, the people of Adam and Seth, um, they now understand death is something that's possible uh, for them as well. And so if you do calculations down through the genealogy, what you will see is uh, nine generations are alive at the same time when Adam dies. And then Noah is the first person born into a world where natural death is a reality in this lineage. So by the time Noah comes along, there's no guessing about whether or not death is going to be a possibility. So, um, I mean, think about all the technology that we have now versus uh, what we had when, when somebody like me was in high school. Uh, you know, we had one of these telephones like back here, it's mounted on the wall with a long cord, right? I think my niece asked my, my brother the other day, why do we say hang up the phone? Because she's, I don't guess, has ever seen like an old rotary where you hang it up on the wall, you know? What does that mean? And so it, we sometimes we, um, those of us that have lived through those changes don't have the same perspective as people that were born into that world. Uh, children born today are born into a world with cell phones and ubiquitous internet. Um, you know, I was playing with cardboard boxes as a kid, you know, I mean, we had television, we had some other things and I had plenty of toys and stuff, but it's like, I didn't, I didn't get my first computer until I was in high school until I was sort of old enough to almost build one myself. And I did, I did build my own computers in, in high school and college. Um, so to be born into a world as a very young child and have iPads and all these kinds of things, very, you have very different perspective on life. So now take out the metaphor of technology and consider the idea of death. Imagine living in a world where there is no death, you know, at least no natural death. And you're able to shield yourselves from people that are maybe causing unnatural deaths through murder. But, uh, now you find I cannot shield myself from natural death that, um, it, you know, it's coming for every human. Now you have Noah who's born into that world where that is just an understanding. So what you have is a transition in this genealogy. Chapter five begins as kind of a recreation with the people of Seth. But what it leads into is, um, you know, a family that um, where there is, you know, the, the, the sons of Cain are off doing their own thing. And now death is, is a very real possibility. It's not the picture perfect world of paradise of Eden that we had a few chapters ago. So things are progressing here in the narrative and the world is getting a little grittier as we go on. Again, all of that is just narrative that you can draw out of just this genealogy. If you kind of go through and do the math and, and sort of see what there is to be found there. So uh, some other narrative that's uh, going on here, we see that the sons of Seth, and again, I'm not going to read um, the text so you can read it at some other time or you can skim it along as, as I'm um, 
making notes here, but um, we see that Seth's sons begin to call on the name of the Lord or call on the renown of the Lord. That's what Seth's sons are doing, whereas Cain's sons are seeking a renown of their own. They're making a name for themselves. Compare the genealogy in chapter 5, again, to Cain's genealogy at the end of chapter 4. And so um, uh, what you have then now is we move on to chapter 6. So it sets it up for us in these genealogies in chapter 5. Seth, sons of Seth, are seeking after the Lord. Sons of Cain are seeking after their own renown. And so now we have here at the beginning of chapter 6, and I will read a little portion of this. So uh, beginning Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1, I'll be reading 1 through 8-ish. Again, my verse numbers are numbered a little weird. So, Uh, And it happened as humankind began to multiply over the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were comely, and they took themselves wives howsoever they chose. And the Lord said, My breath shall not abide in the human forever, for he is but flesh. Let his days be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were then on the earth, and afterward as well, the sons of God, having come to bed with the daughters of man, who bore them children. They are the heroes of yore, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the evil of the human creature was great on the earth, and that every scheme of his heart's devising was only perpetually evil. And the Lord regretted having made the human on earth and was grieved to the heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe out the human race I created from the face of the earth, from human cattle to crawling thing to the fowl of the heavens, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the lineage, this is the lineage of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And then it gives some some more information there. So I'll, I'll stop there for, for the time being. So let's go back to this idea of the Nephilim. Um, we see the term brought up later in scripture. And I believe it's when the spies go into Canaan, they come back and report that they've seen some Nephilim there. And they're referring to giants. They're referring to large people. Um, it's not surprising given the uh, Jews still are, but of course were at that time um, generally shorter than the average human on earth. And the sea peoples like the Philistines that had come possibly from a European area across the Mediterranean and settled into uh, land of Canaan, land of Palestine, what is now modern day Israel. The sea peoples that have settled there were all larger and they were taller people. Uh, of course, we know Goliath was very, very tall. We I, We think that's probably an anomaly how tall that he was, but still they were, they were tall in general, six, seven feet. And so you can imagine how big uh, they would look to someone who's maybe, uh, you know, five, five and a half feet. So it's a big, big size difference when you're going to try and take over their land. Right. So immediately their, their minds would go to sort of these legends of the Nephilim. And so there's all kinds of talk about the Nephilim, basically because of the way the language is here in chapter 6. The sons of God, well, that must be angels, and they've had um, relations with the daughters of men, and so now you have these sort of half-angel, half-men people walking around, and that's why they're giants, and that's why they're the heroes of yore, you know, and that's great for comic books and movies and those kinds of things, and it's a lot of fun to think about, and certainly those kinds of ideas seem to maybe have existed in the minds of people much after the time that we're reading about right now. But if you take this idea of the Nephilim in the context of what we just read with those two genealogies at the end of chapter 4 and uh, the lineage of Seth in chapter 5, it seems a lot clearer what it's speaking about. 
that the the sons of God, sort of the 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 people that have called on the name of the Lord, uh, the people of Seth, saw that the daughters of man, this is sort of the lineage of Cain, and the people who are doing their own thing, seeking their own renown, and now they're starting to intermarry, right? This is a big um, uh, topic in a lot of the rest of the Old Testament, that the Jewish people know you can't intermarry with all these other people because and it's, it's got nothing to do with, with their genetics or anything like that. It's about their worldview, that they worship these other gods, and you'll be led astray, and you'll be led into idolatry, and you'll be led into all the curses that, the, that come to bear on them because they are pursuing something that isn't the God who made them. And so already, right away, we're seeing that happen, that the sons of Seth and the sons of Cain are intermarrying and uh, creating uh, people who are, because they're going out to seek their own renown, they become the heroes of yore, the men of renown, right? So that seems like a much more reasonable explanation than the really fantastic stories, which again, are very fun to think about, make for great comic books and horror movies or whatever. But I think this explanation makes so much more sense. And to me, again, looking at Genesis as one story goes right along with the story that we're seeing. Okay, so let's kind of go all the way back now to uh, Genesis chapter one and just think when God began creating, right, there was welter and waste. And where was God? He was separate from it. He was hovering over it. Right. Then there was light. And what did God do with the light and the dark? He separated it. Right. Then there was water. And what did God do? He separated it into the waters above and the waters below. And then there was water on earth. And what did he do? He separated it so that the dry land could appear. Right. And then there were animals and man. And what did he do? He passed the animals by and there was no suitable help for, for Adam. So Adam was pulled aside. He was separated from the animals. There was something special about Adam. He was made in God's image. There was something separate, different about Adam. It wasn't good for man to be alone, for the human to be alone. So what did God do with the human? He separated him into uh, a male and a female. Right. The man and woman sinned. And so what did he do? He separated them from the tree of life. Cain killed Abel. What did God do? He separated Cain from the rest of his family. So those of you who are Christians, those of you who are church folks, what does the word holy mean? It means set apart. It means set aside for a special purpose. It means separated. Right. So you see a theme forming now here, right? This is another reason why it's very critical that you don't take just Genesis 1 and try and interpret Genesis 1 solely based on Genesis 1 by itself. Genesis 1 does not exist by itself. It exists as part of this larger work. And so to fully understand what Genesis 1 is trying to tell you, you can see now to really understand Genesis 1, you've got to read at least through chapter 6. Right, We're way past creation now. We're down into what men and women on the earth are doing and the history of peoples. And now there's uh, all kinds of, there's lots of people on the earth now, right? So we're getting into the Noah story and we're still learning things that help us interpret correctly Genesis chapter one. So this goes to the much larger point of if you want to have a robust theology, if you want to understand scripture correctly, you've got to have some knowledge of all of it. You've got to understand what it means for what it says. You've got to understand what it means in context. You've got to understand what it means in context with the rest of the Bible. And then you've got to understand sort of where it falls in uh, the context of all of creation. So we're going to continue to keep those ideas in mind as we go through, again, these wide swaths of scripture by going through these big chunks. I think that will help us sort of back out and start to see what are the larger contexts in which we find all these stories. 
So, um, so you see what God has been doing from Genesis chapter one, all the way through here. It's constantly separating. Here's the blessed, these cursed things. We're going to separate them. This blessed thing, these things that are going to live under a blessing are going to live with God. These things that, that don't want to live under the blessing, then they're going to go out and they're going to endure the, the consequences of their curses on their own. We see a lot of this language reiterated in the New Testament. I've copied a verse into my notes long ago from uh, Matthew 5, where Jesus says, You're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Well, how would salt lose its taste? Well, if you are salting something to preserve it, or if you're salting something to season it, you're probably going to add some other seasonings on it, or you're going to add the salt to some other thing like meat that you're preserving. And so how does the salt lose its saltiness? Because it's mixed in with a bunch of other stuff. So how can it be restored once it's been mixed in with all these other things? It it can't. And Jesus goes on to say, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The only thing, the only good it's for is to walk on. And um, Jesus says, you're the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So again, a city set apart, set up on a hill, up above, away from everything else, just like God hovered over the waters. That light up there, the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a lamp, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. So Jesus here is drawing on this idea of, you know, in the world that you live in, you must somehow be set apart so that your light shines. Why? For your own renown? No, for the renown of the Lord, so that uh, the father will receive glory, the father who is in heaven. Okay, so now we get into the story of Noah. I'm not going to go over the story of Noah. I think most of us um, who are a Christian, at least, and that's mostly who kind of has been listening to this, um, you know the story of Noah. You can read it. Uh, I don't have a, a ton to add. I will say in um, when he starts building the boat, you know, it's never called a boat. It's called a what? It's called an ark. Well, what is an ark? So you've seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark right? They got the Ark of the Covenant, right? What was the Ark of the Covenant? It was a chest, right? It was a box. It was a four-legged chest with a lid that you put things in, okay? If you go into a synagogue, even today, they have what's called a Torah Ark, and it's a place where they keep their, their Torah scrolls for their synagogue. What is the, how is the ark shape? Is it a canoe on the wall that they're keeping their Torahs in? No, it's a box. It's a chest. It's like a wardrobe. They open it up and they've got shelves in there where they keep all of their scrolls and there's drawers and things. All right. That's the Torah ark. So what is an ark? Well, it's a box. So, you know, it's not called Noah's boat. It's Noah's ark. So there's a, what's the difference then? I guess it would be the question. What, what difference does it make? What's the difference between a boat and an ark? Well, a boat is a, a ship that you use to you know get from one place to another, right? It's used for navigating water. It's used for traveling. And it is somehow directed with a sail, with a keel, um, these kinds of things. So that's why a boat has the classic shape that it does. The front is pointed so it can break the water, and it has a keel on the bottom so that it doesn't um, tip over, but also so it can be steered, right? So, uh, you know, barges... They don't tip over, but they can't be steered. They have to have another boat that has um, a keel on it and, and, and a, a pointed front part, like a tugboat, to be able to steer it around somewhere, right? 
So the ark, if we look at the directions that God gives, it has no source of power, it has no sails, it has no keel, no indication that it has any kind of pointed front or anything like that. So all of the recreations that you've seen and the the really cool thing that they've built up in Kentucky or wherever it is, and uh, you know the little toys that you have, little bath toys or whatever, all those things are very cool, maybe correct, right? But ark in every other context. Every, every other context just means box. So this is like a box of tissues here, right? So um, Noah's Ark was an elongated thing, right? It's very long, but it might have just been a big rectangle. I mean, that's the dimensions and everything that are given here in the text. So it might have just been a big box. Why? Because God was the one that was going to decide where it was going to go. Because remember, the whole story of Genesis is about trusting in the Lord or not. What happens when you trust in the Lord and what happens when you don't. Noah is the only one to trust in the Lord. He's a righteous man, found blameless in his time, and he walks with God when no one else will. And so Noah is the one that builds the box, builds the ark for his family and all the animals of the earth to get inside during the flood. won't say a lot about the flood, but um, of course, every uh, civilization, um, every ancient civil civilization has a flood story. So it seems that there was a flood of some kind. And many of those flood stories include uh, someone who survived it and uh, was able to rebuild his uh, family and civilization and tell the tale. Okay, so I'm going to jump to um, chapter 8. And I'm in Genesis chapter 8. And so this is after the rains have stopped, the floods have gone away, and now the door is open. Uh, oh, the only other thing I want to say about all the stuff that we just kind of skipped over is it was very quick for us to skip over it, but we're talking about centuries. All the stuff that we're talking about tonight, we're talking about centuries from Adam living and dying to Noah being born to Noah building the ark to the time that it took for the flood and the rain and the water. I mean, they were in there where there was uh dry ground for like, I think a week before God even opens the door and lets them out. So just constantly waiting on God, a lot of time passing before what God says is going to happen comes to fruition. So again, right back to that idea of trusting on God and trusting in his time and being patient. So I'm in chapter eight now, and I'm looking at verses 19 through 22. This is the very end of uh, chapter eight. Every beast, every crawling thing, and every fowl, everything that stirs on the earth by their families came out of the ark, and Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took from every clean cattle and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Okay, let's pause right there. Noah gets off the ark and immediately takes some of the animals that he just spent, you know, he just spent all this time and effort trying to save, immediately takes them and kills them on the altar for the Lord. Now, the reason why that's interesting is because, uh, you know, the Lord has not asked for that, right? We don't see that the Lord asked for Cain and Abel's offering either, even though he was pleased by Abel, Abel's offering. But the Lord has not asked for this offering that we can tell. It's not in the text anywhere, right? Uh, in fact, if you look at what the Lord says to Noah just before that, he just tells them to go out of the ark, you and your family, and multiply on the earth and take everything with you. So they go out and he builds this altar and he sacrifices on it some of these animals. So now let's see um, what happens next. So 
Uh, it says, and the Lord smelled the fragrant or the fragrant odor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again condemn the soil on humankind's score, for the devisings of the human heart are evil from youth. Well, that took an unexpected turn very quickly. Okay. So uh, it says, the Lord smelled the fragrant odor. So the way that it's phrased there doesn't necessarily mean the Lord thought it was fragrant, right? Maybe, maybe it means kind of like Noah burned it because it smells good. And so if this smells good, maybe this will please God. <clears throat> it's really kind of unclear there. It doesn't necessarily, the only point I'm making is it's not necessarily connecting the Lord being the one having the opinion that it's the, that it's fragrant. Okay. So it might be the narrator that thinks that it's fragrant. It might be Noah. So Lord smells the fragrant odor and he says, I won't condemn the soil on humankind's score. Uh, again, for the devisings of the human heart are evil from youth. So Noah sacrifices animals, and God's response is to say, <laughs> people are evil from their youth. Not exactly gratitude, right? So we're not totally sure that this is something that God has asked for or maybe even pleased with. And there's more to that. Let's keep reading. He says, I will again not strike down all living things as I did. Uh, as long as the day, as all the days of the earth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Okay, so Noah's first act is bloodshed. <laughs> Coming off the ark, God says, you know, peop all people are evil from their youth. And remember, he's saying this at a time now where, according to our story, the only people left are Noah and his family. So these are the good people. And God's saying, oh, they're evil from their youth. What are you going to do? Now we go into chapter nine. And remember, the chapters and verse numbers, that's all constructs that come later. So originally, the story of Genesis just rolls right along, and the only way that you know that it separates is when there's a break in narrative or when there's a genealogy. So this is, even though it's a new chapter, we shouldn't think about that like chapters in a Harry Potter book or something like that. This is rolling right along with the same story. So Noah makes the sacrifice. God says, uh, people are evil from their youth. And now look at what happens here in chapter nine. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fear, fear the earth. Um, and he had already said that to them once. So what's different this time? Here's what's different this time from when he said it in chapter eight. And the dread and fear of you shall be upon all the beast of the field and all the fowl of the heavens and all that crawls on the ground and all the fish of the sea. In your hand, they are given all stirring things that are alive. Yours shall be for food. It's very interesting because in Genesis one, he gives all the seed bearing plants for food. He does not give them the animals for food. Now, they may have been eating them anyway, but God did not necessarily say that they could have them. Here, though, he is explicitly saying, okay, fine, you can eat animals for food. Um, in your hand, they are given all stirring things that are alive. Yours shall be for food like the green plants I have given all to you. But flesh with its lifeblood still in it, you shall not eat. And just so your lifeblood, I will requite from every beast, I will requite it. And from, and from humankind, from every man's brother, I will requite human life. And now we have a little poem here, a little song, kind of a dark song. He who sheds human blood by humans, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, swarm through the earth and hold sway over it. Not exactly a, you know, catchy melody, right? So. The world is destroyed. Noah gets out. His gift of thanks is to immediately kill something. God has to almost step in and say, look, I know everybody likes killing each other and things. So look, you want the food, you can, you, the animals for food, you can have that, but you can't kill each other. So what you have here really 
is the first command for all humanity. Now, you could argue that do not eat of the tree of life is the first command for all humanity since Adam is the only human. Okay, you could argue that. But what you have here, now that you've got people in a society, what you have here is God giving a formal command, no one can kill. Don't kill each other. Right? So Noah offers this sacrifice on the altar, and God's response is to say, humans are evil from their youth, don't kill each other. Okay, just something to think about, as I don't think that we interpret, I think we interpret Noah's sacrifices as sort of a wonderful thing because of that fragrant aroma thing, but God's response to it, not very fragrant. Okay, um, so moving on from there then, um, it's wrapped in a blessing. So even this command about not killing each other is wrapped in a blessing. You be fruitful, multiply, swarm through the earth, hold sway over it. The world still is here for you. Um one last thing about this statement that God says, oh, I've, you know, I've seen the, the devising of the human heart is evil from their youth. You know, this is not a surprise to God. It reads that way. What is that statement there for? It's there for the reader. It's there for us. That's not a surprise to God, right? It's God stating something outright as a, as a commentary on the story that has just played out. That's there for us. God's not surprised by this. Um. So what God is doing here through the Holy Spirit, through the author of Genesis, with the stories that you see and the way that they're laid out through the storytelling, not just through the content, not just through the things that actually happen, but through the way they're told, through the storytelling, what God is doing here is systematically breaking down every conceivable objection you might have to worshiping him or living life with the Lord as your Lord. Right, Because every person that steps away and says, well, I can do this on my own. Well, I can do this better. God is constantly separating them out. And anyone that you think is going to be a holy person, Adam, Eve, Cain, um, Noah even, right? Any of these people that you think are going to be good and holy people, we're also seeing their failings. We're also seeing that actually, you know, they're not that great either. And so uh, when... I think we have a classic idea that there's like good people and there's bad people. And Genesis is very systematically breaking down that idea by showing, yeah, there's really not any good people, <laughs> right? There's not good people and bad people. There's not any good people. People are evil from their youth, right? So look, we're not even nine chapters into the Bible and we've sort of settled that debate story-wise, right? So then what makes the difference? What makes the difference is those that continue to call on the name of the Lord and those that don't. That's what makes the difference. It's a thing that goes right on into the gospel all the way into uh, Revelation. And you see that being set up here right in the early chapters of Genesis. It's excellent, masterful storytelling. And so the Lord is saying the only place you can survive is with me because I provide the blessing. So stay with me. Um. So uh, God uh, gives them uh, some blessings, and um, I'll skip over those. And he says that he won't destroy by water again. And even though his word should be enough, they don't really have a response. Okay, so if you'll notice down around verse uh, 11 or 12 there, he says, hey, I, I won't destroy the world by flood anymore. And God said... God was just speaking, and now it says, and God said. So remember what I've said in previous videos, that ancient discourse was dialogue. And so if the other person doesn't respond, if you see an and God said when God was already talking, that is letting you know the other person had no response. 
So since they had no response to God's word, now God gives them a sign. Here's the sign of the covenant. So I've made the covenant. My word should be enough. But just so you'll know, I'll give you a sign for everlasting generations. I'll set my bow in the sky. Of course, talking about the rainbow, which we often see uh, after rain. And so we still see that sign today. And it should mean uh, the same thing that it did in this time. Now, we're running out of time here, but I want to go ahead and get into... Um, uh, uh, well, yeah, let me, let, let me in there. I'll, I'll pick up this other little trickier stuff, um, tomorrow. I was hoping to get all the way to Abram tonight, but I kind of run out of time. So, um, this is difficult material to go through talking about the destruction of the world, talking about separation when, um, a lot of us are the only, probably the only reason you're watching this is because you're stuck at home and you're bored and you've watched enough law and order. And so you're just watching this to kind of break up the monotony. So we're all kind of set apart for the time being. And it's a, it's a little scary, the things that are going on in the world, not just the medical things, which is the big thing, but it's also causing um, some financial concerns. And there's going to be a bunch of political fallout um, from a lot of these things. And we're seeing some of that starting to kind of bubble up already. And it's causing a lot of anxiety and it's causing a lot of tension, right? And the story of Genesis, again, is, you know, you have a choice. Are you going to live as blessed people or are you going to go away and live under the consequence of the curses? Because if you live as Cain, then you live restless and wandering, right? Anxious and pacing around. But if you live under the blessing, then you can trust God and be patient. So I can't tell you what's going to happen in your family and your friends with, with, with your health or with your finances or anything like that. But right now you've been sort of sequestered in your home. You've sort of been set apart. So right now, what are you setting apart? What are you, how are you kind of dividing your time, separating your time? Have you set aside any any set of time to say, uh, okay, this piece of time, this is, this is for you, God. That's one reason why I'm doing this. And I got to be honest, I've been really bad at this idea myself. I had a lot of things I really kind of hope to get done. And just for a lot of reasons, I've been restless and wondering and not really concentrating on uh, things that I could really set aside and, and, and do some good things. But that's one reason why I wanted to go through this class. I don't even care if anybody watches it. I kind of, I need to do it for me because I need to keep my mind in these kinds of ideas. And the only reason I'm even broadcasting is because I thought other people might find them, might find some peace in them as well. So what are you doing? Are you setting aside any time during the day? Are you setting aside any place in your home? Uh, if you, maybe you have a guest room that... Nobody has any reason to be in for the time being, so maybe set it up as a prayer room and just go in there and sit for a few times a day. Um, we, Mom and Dad and I did a church this morning, both with our church here at home, and then right after that, the church in Murfreesboro came on, the beauty of being in two different time zones. And so we were able to watch both of those and spend some time with our church family, even though we're all apart from each other. Um have you um, been learning anything? Have you been studying anything? Have you been reading anything that is going to help you make the renown of God bigger in the earth? 
have you lifted somebody up? This is, you know, where everybody is, <laughs> you know what they're doing, you know, they're not busy and you know that they're probably anxious and you know that they're probably isolated. And so now's a great time to, to pick up your phone and text people and call people and uh, just let them know that you're thinking about them, that you're praying for them. I mean, it seems like such a small gesture. You have no idea how huge a gesture that could be to people right now, especially um, thinking about older people who don't get out much anyway and really look forward to Sundays, to seeing everyone at church. I remember uh, my my friend, my good friend who's passed on now, Marguerite Grandstaff. Um, I want to say she was 94 when she passed away. I'm not sure about that, but I remember uh, I saw her one day when she was 92 and she was at the in the parking lot. And even when she was not in great health and, and, and weak and needed help kind of getting in and out of the building, she would come to church in large part because that was the only time that she'd see somebody. And I saw her in the parking lot one day. I said, Miss Grandstaff, I'm glad you're here. And she said, well, honey, I'm 92 years old. I'm glad to be anywhere. And, you know, there's that's somebody who loves people and loves being around people. And um, that's the kind of person that uh, would like to receive a phone call today. Um, and just know that somebody else is, is loving them and thinking about them and praying for them. So what have you set aside time-wise, space-wise, learning-wise, um, person-wise, contact-wise? Are you building anything that is, um, that you can take out of here with you and, um, increase the renown of God in the world? It's difficult. It's difficult because we're, we're, you know, we're all kind of in the same boat here, but well, we have to do it or else we're going to be restless wanderers like the children of Cain. So um, I'm going to come back tomorrow and we'll get to Abram tomorrow night, Lord willing, but um, take some time <clears throat> and think about uh, who you can reach out to you know, tonight or in the morning and we can't do much, but let's do what we can with what we got where we are. And, um, I hope that, um, you've received some peace tonight and just know that, uh, I love you. I'm praying for you. Appreciate all of you being here and, uh, Godspeed. God bless. Talk to you soon. Sketches from scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker, Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.